You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. If you're just uh, joining us, we've been studying the book of Daniel chapter by chapter. And we come now to chapter 8, and it's another one of Daniel's visions And the the title is based on verse 14, verse 26, which Daniel says is the vision of the evenings and the mornings. If the first vision, that is the one we looked at last week, alarmed Daniel, this one left him appalled and sick in bed for several days. And uh, so let's give our attention to uh, Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. For he did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. 
So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me, made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I'll make known to you what shall be at the later end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power." And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not only by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning He shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick, For some days, then I rose, went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Lord, please help us as we come to your word once again to have understanding. And we pray that this understanding, Lord, would better equip us and ultimately transform us into the likeness of Christ. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is difficult. And one of the temptations of understanding and interpreting apocalyptic or prophetic passages like this is, is resisting the temptation to try to, to name things where it's not been named or to try to determine times and so forth. Of course, this isn't new. For years, people have been trying to identify these horns and antichrist and all of these different things. And, and for many years, people have been coming out and saying and tried to predict the end. We, we've heard many preachers perhaps say, the end is near. Some have even said, it's going to come in 1994. Well, 1994 came and went and nothing happened, didn't it? Or they say, well, maybe it's going to come in 2011. The end is near. Well, that passed. Well, how about 2021? And, and on and on. And uh, those days came and went and the world continued on. Now, don't, don't, don't hear me wrong about this because... One of the core convictions of our faith is that Jesus Christ will come again. At some point, the end of the world will indeed come. And Jesus Christ will come. He'll come back. He'll draw all of history to a close. He will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible is crystal clear about this teaching. 
But as Ian Duguid notes, I think right, even if Christ returns soon, he writes, for most readers of the book of Daniel and Revelation, the end of the world was not just around the corner. And so the question is, why do preachers keep telling us that the primary message of these books, like Daniel and Revelation, is that the end is near? I think it's a great question. He goes on to share an illustration that I'm sure perhaps some of you, maybe many of you have experienced. How many of us parents have set out to go on a long car ride with our families? Maybe we were going on vacation or something. We knew it was going to be a long way. And we got in the car. Before we got to the end of the driveway, there was a little voice from the back seat that that spoke up and said... Are we there yet? And then how many of us as parents, perhaps not, uh, maybe wanting to avoid uh, a a conversation, would have applied something like, we're we're almost there. Even though we had 400 more miles to go, and it was going to be long and tough and hot and all this kinds of of things. But, But frankly, it was just easier to kind of give that answer and pretend than face reality. In in many ways, Daniel 8 is that reality check for us. That we may have a long way to go before the end comes. That things may get worse. Things may get harder before Jesus comes back. And it seems to be answering the question, how do you persist in faith and obedience to God when you're under constant pressure, and perhaps intense persecution, and there seems to be no end in sight. What if it takes longer than we thought? Dale Ralph Davis, his little commentary, divides this passage under two headings, which I think are helpful to us this morning. The first is this, God steadies His people to walk through the course of history. That's the first Uh, Part of Daniel's message here, verses 1 through 8 and verses 20 through 23. God steadies his people to walk through the course of history. We're told in the opening verses that uh, this is the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So this is two years after Daniel's vision in chapter 7. And he has another vision. He dreams he's in Susa, which is about 220 miles from Babylon, it's 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf area of what is now modern Iran. And Daniel there envisions this ram that has two horns, and he tells us what it represents, doesn't he? Down in verse 20, he tells us that it signifies the nations, those two horns signify the nations of Media and Persia. And this ram that Daniel sees is unconquerable. Verse 4, the picture that is given there is this ram charging in all different directions and no beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. That is until this levitating goat comes on the scenes. Who saw that coming? Verses 5 through 7. And and we learn from verse 21. Thank goodness he tells us who it is. The goat represents Greece, the nation of Greece. And that single horn, we know history has proven, was the leader of that, which was Alexander the Great. And this Greek goat, levitating goat, 
smashes into this ram with such speed and force that his feet aren't even on the ground. I mean, he hits him so hard. Verse 7 tells us the ram had no power to stand before the goat. He cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong... Verse 8 tells us, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And again, history confirms the prophecy that when Alexander the Great died at a pretty young age, his kingdom was divided up into four of his generals, four kingdoms, if you will. Verse 22 gives reference to that. So think about what is being communicated here. There's a wonderful truth, and we'll move on past this, but I just want to mention it. The wonderful truth is that the Bible is accurate in all that it prophesies. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful truth? You can trust it. It's, it's reliable, it's true, and it's wonderful. But I want you to think about what this vision of Daniel depicts about history. First, it depicts a very turbulent time of history and a very lengthened time of turbulence. Baldwin notes this, verse 4, that single verse, 4, that talks about the dominance of the ram with two horns, that that single verse represents 200 years of history. 200 years of tyranny and dominance about which no one could be rescued from that hard time of that ram. Now, Daniel couldn't have known the timing of that, but certainly he realized from his own time, nearly 70 years of being in Babylon, that this was going to be a significant amount of time. And perhaps even more concerning is how turbulent that time would be, how difficult it would be. One empire smashing into another. This, this time, this history would be anything but peaceful and calm. This would be the world in which God's people were called to live, this turbulent time. His vision also reveals to us, I think, that it's a a tenuous time of history. Think about the ram and the picture of verse 4. He seemed to be absolutely unconquerable. That is, until the levitating goat came, And what's more is these kings, represented by these horns, these kings are mortal men. They're just broken off. A single horn, he tells us in verse 8, representing the king, can die and a whole kingdom fracture into four parts. You know, when you're in the moment of history like this, it seems like things are permanent and invincible and that no one's going to be able to conquer anybody. But all these kings and kingdoms of the world, we're reminded here, God is reminding us, are tenuous at best. It's a turbulent and tenuous world in which we live. So think about this from Daniel's perspective. He's in Babylon. He knows that the 70 years of promised exile to Babylon is coming to a close. He's at the end of it. Wouldn't you be looking forward to the end of that exile? Amen, wouldn't you? Thank God it's about over with. Perhaps he's thinking. And yet he gets this vision here in chapter 8. And when the exile is over and Israel is allowed to return to its glorious land, verse 9 is what it calls it, his glorious land, he's told this vision that there's still going to be all of this troubled stuff left to come. Imagine that setting in. 
Getting back to the land of Israel will not mean that the kingdom of God is going to immediately appear and that all these difficulties are going to go away. In fact, there's going to be more troubles, he's told. John Walton, his introduction on the Old Testament explains it like this. He says the Israelites were to live out their faith in a world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them generation by generation, crisis by crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rose and fell. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, God's people were called to be prepared for the long term. Now, I understand that's not a very popular message. There's a big part of me that wants to stand up and and say, the end is near, the end is near. His coming is right around the corner. I want to say that in part because I want that to be the truth. Don't you? Don't you, church? I know it's hot, but you got to stay with me here. Don't you want Christ coming to be right around the corner? You see, but, but here's the caution that Daniel 8 is, is giving us. It's, it is our nature to desire these kinds of things. It's our nature to desire a, a quick fix approach to our discipleship rather than a long view of it. And so if Daniel chapter 7, that vision is talking about this glorious future that we have with Christ that we long for, Daniel 8 is placed here to remind us that the time between now and then may be longer and more difficult than what we expect. Well, we're finding that true, aren't we? We're finding that true even even in our church, aren't we? It's taking longer. It's more difficult. The work is longer and more costly than we expected. We felt that in our business meeting on Wednesday night, didn't we? But, But I want to remind you that what's needed now is not a... It's not a shallow, flimsy, quick-fix kind of discipleship that's going to be the answer to everything, but rather a sober, durable, long-suffering, and faithful-to-God-in-His-Word kind of discipleship. That's what will sustain us, church. It's not just Daniel 8 that teaches us to have this kind of approach, by the way. Jesus teaches us that. Some of you in your Sunday school this morning, I think you're in Mark 13, perhaps, or you've been there about. And I get this all the time. People will come to me, and and you know the verses. Jesus says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be what? Alarmed. Well, it's funny because everybody that comes to me and wants to talk about this, they're alarmed about it. Jesus says this must take place. But what, is, what does he say is not yet? The end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, Jesus says these are not signs of the end. You understand that's what he's saying. People come to me, oh, we have more earthquakes. There's a sign. No, Jesus says that's not a sign of the end. It's not a sign, but rather what he's saying is, is this is how things are going to be in the world in which you live. 
This is gonna be the hardship. Daniel's saying the same thing. He's saying in this world, there's gonna be rams colliding with goats. You understand that? Empires colliding with one another. There's gonna be monsters rising from the sea, casting a dark shadow over everything. There's gonna be evil and difficulty. And this is precisely where you and I live out our discipleship. This is where you and I are called to to be faithful in the midst of this. And just like in Daniel's day, we have to count on, on the sovereignty of God to sustain us, church. Just like he sustained generation after generation of God's people, his church, crisis by crisis. He's reminding us they are going to come and just like them, we're going to have to trust the power of God to sustain us in these tumultuous and tenuous times. And praise the Lord, we have a God who steadies his people through the course of history. A God who is faithful. Don't take your eyes off him, church. Don't look to quick fixes. Look to your God We notice, secondly, we have a God who, similarly but different, He forearms His people to face the crises of history. He forearms His people. That seems to be the message of verses 9 through 19, and I think verses 23 through 26. Well, in verse 9, we're introduced to another little horn. And in other words, it's another king. The horns represent a king, powerful leader or nation. And I, I say another here because I want you to notice it's not the same little horn that we talked about last week in chapter 7. This is a different little horn. It's, it's different. We can see it from the text. This little horn in chapter 7, you remember, I, I'm pretty sure is talking about the Antichrist, the last the last Antichrist, the final Antichrist who's going to come in the final rebellion against God right before Jesus comes back. But, and it comes out of Rome, out of the, the kingdoms that flow out of Rome, you remember. This little horn, though, in chapter 8, comes out of the Greek goat, doesn't it? That's a different horn. It comes out of the kingdom of Greece, out of one of the four kingdoms that succeeded Alexander the Great. And so we note about this, this leader, this leader, this little horn is focusing all of his destructive energies against God's people and their worship. Verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and notice this, toward the glorious land, God's people. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven, some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. You remember when God gave the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15, he promised that Abraham and his descendants would become innumerable like the stars in heaven. Think of, think of that. This little horn is throwing down God's people. He's trampling on them. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, that is God. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. This is stunning. 
It's encouraging in one sense that Daniel could see ahead and know that God's people were going to return from Babylon and get back to the temple for worship. That is encouraging. He has a vision here of them doing that, but it's only to encounter this little horn. Verse 12 says he, or verse 11 says that he would oppose God himself. In the middle of verse 11, he will eradicate the worship of God. Verse 12, he will crush God's people under his feet. Verse 24, the second part of it, he, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. You, you can understand why this vision left Daniel sick in the bed, didn't you? Don't you? Why do tyrants get to walk all over God's people like this? Well, that question isn't answered in the text, but instead the question is raised, how long? Verse 13, how long is the vision? How long is this going to take place? The transgression that makes desolate, the giving over the sanctuary, the host to be trampled underfoot. The answer is given 2,300 evenings and mornings. The good news is it's listed in days and not years, right? I mean, you could look at it that way, but it's still a lot of days. And there's a debate about this. What does this mean? Um, some will say, well, the sacrifice was always offered in the morning and the evening, and so 2,300 should be half. It should be 1,150 days. Others just say, no, it's 2,300 days. I, I, I really don't think it matters because it, it, it essentially it's a pointing to this same period in history to a particular ruler, a king, if you will, named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, who ruled somewhere around 2nd century BC. This fellow, Antiochus, he renamed himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means this Antiochus, the illustrious God. That tells you a lot about this punk, doesn't it? Somewhere around 168, 167 BC, he comes in, he is savagely attacks. Jerusalem, he executed tens of thousands of God's people. He entered the Holy of Holies, you see, in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on the Holy of Holies to the God of Zeus. Human sacrifices are recorded as well that he made in the Holy of Holies. And then he did some other things in this season of time, 2,300 days. He outlawed circumcision. And so any Jewish family that had a baby, they wanted to express their faith in the, the covenant of God. Anybody who's circumcised, he put that family to death. If you were caught so much with a copy of the Torah, God's law, you were executed. You were not allowed to participate in any Sabbath worship whatsoever. And he mandated that in every town in Judea, a sacrifice was to be made there and offered uh, to the heathen gods. And he sent out overseers to make sure that it was done. It was forced. This man wasn't the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, but he certainly was a foretaste of it, wasn't he? 
horrible situation. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, God's people were under extreme persecution. Psalm 79 gives a testimony about it, the aftermath. It reads, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And the psalmist goes on to ask, how long, O Lord? We understand that cry, don't we? Here in chapter 8, verse 17, when Daniel is talking about the, the phrase, the time of the end, he's not talking about the end time. He's talking about when is it going to end? When is this terrible piece of scum named Antiochus going to be taken care of? And this persecution end. Gabriel there is sent to tell Daniel to assure him that there will be an end, that God will step in to preserve his people, as he always does, church. Verse 25 tells us that Antiochus will be broken, but by no human hand God will dispose of him. And it'll be a foretaste, again, of the final destruction of the Antichrist to come. But why is all of this in here? I mean, what is this meant to communicate to us in this particular day? You notice Daniel's told of a couple of things to, uh, to do. First, he's to understand the vision. It's repeated there. Verse 15, he sought to understand it. Verse 16, Gabriel is sent to help him to understand it. Verse 17, he's commanded to understand. He needs to understand it. Secondly, he's told, this is at the end, verse 26, to seal up the vision. In other words, I want you to preserve this vision for a time that's coming. Seal it up. What was going to happen to God's people in this particular time of 2,300 days was an unprecedented evil like they had never seen. The day would come when Israel would need this revelation. They would need to be reminded of it. They would need to know so that in it they would look to God and be faithful. This is a kindness of God to prepare them for what is coming, isn't it? We might illustrate it like this. Sometimes, uh, perhaps in your family, moms, dads, kids, whatever, you, you will play a game in which you will, uh, around the house during normal hours, you will scare one another. I don't know if this ever happens to you or not. You're walking down the hallway to your room and one of your kids or your spouse jumps out and says, boo, and just scares the living daylights out of you, right? Has that ever happened to you all? Anybody ever done this? It's a terrible thing. When you're the one being scared. But what happens when you happen to see someone sneaking into that room out of the corner of your eye before you walk down the hallway? Oh, that's a game changer, isn't it? <laughs> because then you walk down the hallway and you got a couple options. When they jump out and say, boo, you just say, <laughs> You give them no satisfaction. That didn't scare me at all. Or you can turn the tables, right? And you can jump in the doorway and scare them. You see, but the point is, the fact that you know that it's coming makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And you see, that's what 
God is doing here for his people? Do you see the kindness of this? This revelation of this little horn is meant to settle and strengthen Israel when this day comes. It's, it's a bit of forewarning, but, but I, I like the word. It's also a bit of forearming, isn't it? In preparation. Is, is this not what Jesus has done for us, by the way? You think about his words to us, uh, for example, in John chapter 16. You remember he's talking there to his disciples. He's preparing them for his departure, for what's coming. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. Jesus says, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. See, Jesus in his kindness is hiding nothing for us. This is what Daniel's doing. He's saying, don't be surprised when you inadvertently find yourself in a clash between a ram and a levitating goat, as though this was somehow kind of accidental. Don't be surprised when you see monsters coming up out of the sea, bringing so much evil and casting so much a shadow of tyranny of evil on the world. Don't be surprised when you hear wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these things. He's say to us this is the world in which we live and behold it may get a lot worse it may be longer and more difficult than you thought you think about how Daniel 8 forearms us for Satan's attacks What this little horn does in verses 11 and 12, I think, is what Satan still does today, doesn't he? His strategies have not changed. In verse 11, the little horn, he put an end to the daily sacrifices for the sins of God's people. Satan still labors, you see, to take our eyes off of the atonement that's been made for us in Christ. Doesn't he? He labors to distract us, to undermine Christ. He labors to promote a style of discipleship, of following Jesus that avoids cross-bearing, that, that looks, looks to easy life application kinds of fixes rather than the heart and life transformation. Our Lord said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Satan doesn't want us to focus on that. Secondly, the little horn sought to overthrow the sanctuary worship there in verse 11. Doesn't he still work to that end today? Don't you see this? I mean, he still keeps, he's still working to keep you from gathering with God's people. In parts of the world, he uses the threat of persecution. You show up there, you're going to be caught. You're going to be arrested. Something bad's going to happen to you. Oh, today in Western world, he puts a ton of seemingly important activities in front of us all the time, telling us, we, we, we sure can't be here. We're so busy. We've got other things to do. Sometimes he brings disunity, disharmony in the fellowship to discourage God's people from gathering. Don't buy it. 
Notice the little horn. Thirdly, according to verse 12, he seeks to throw truth to the ground. He loves to introduce false teaching into the church. This is a hallmark of every antichrist. False teaching. Paul warned us in Acts 20. He said, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from, listen to this, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. But you see, Jesus in his kindness has forearmed us for all of this, hasn't he? Isn't that the good news? He's told us these things are going to happen. He says, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. He's prepared us. That's the purpose of Daniel's vision here in chapter 8. It's the same application for us today. Yes, Jesus is coming again. Yes, I hope it's today. It might be today, but it also might be a while. And for certain, it's going to be hard until he comes. But the good news is we're not alone. Amen? If you're in Christ, you're among the people of God. You're His. And if you, we look to him, look to God to steady us. He will steady us. Amen. He will st- steady us in these turbulent times. He has given us his Holy Spirit to help us in this. And let us not forget his words there, his final words in John 16. Jesus said, in this world, let me see if I can quote it from memory. In this world, you will have comfort. And peace. No, no, that's not what he said. No, he said, in this world, you will have turbulence, tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world, he said. He's already won the war by his life, death, and resurrection. And church, we will share in his victory as well. If we keep trusting Him and looking to Him, this is God's Word. Understand it. Understand it. And seal it up in your heart. You're going to need it. You're going to need it. Lord, thank you. And we pray for your continual help to look not to the things of this world, not to quick fixes, but to look to you, to keep our eyes on you. We pray for those, Lord, we perhaps know and love who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. We pray that they would hear this. They would see the reliability of your word here in Daniel 8 and they would know that there is a time when you're coming. Help them, Lord. Open their eyes to see, their ears to hear the good news of the gospel that they might be saved. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.